The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows as well ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all hope you got over thanksgiving yes good morning, Scott. yeah good morning so talking about renting versus buying uh, obviously covid19 has uh has changed a lot of people's behavior and and there's not much that it hasn't affected i, I guess it it has this too as well renting versus buying yeah it wasn't long ago that everybody wanted to be downtown and and kind of in a congested area so they could walk to their stores and walk everywhere and now it's quite the opposite people are moving out and um you know going out to cottages living into cottages i talked to my daughter her friend's parents were uh selling their house in downtown burlington so they could just stay in their cottage uh 12 months a year and and you know possibly come back and rent later so it's 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 the whole real estate market just gone upside down to the trend that was happening with baby boomers which they predicted would actually happen, kind of interesting enough, where the downtown was the place to go to saying, I want more property, and I want to, uh, I want to you know, have a, I can stretch my legs a bit, so to speak, and I want to, and that whole idea of turnkey and, and going on vacations, I guess because people can't do that now, that whole, uh, the condo isn't quite as appealing as it was once. So there was an article, actually, just on the weekend, last weekend, rather, on, on the Globe, and I thought it was, you know, a very pertinent time to have this out. And it's just because Canadians in general, their goal is always, and we, Andy and I have been doing this for 35 years, one of the main goals is always I want to buy a house. And once that's done, I want to pay off a house, okay? And, you know, pay off that mortgage. And it's interesting, right now the home ownership rate in Canada is 66%. And it actually, if you take out all the young, newly graduated, and say the top, the bottom quartile of all income earners, now the ownership rate is 90%. So really 90% of people that can afford a house are own a house. And so, you know, it's almost like it's one of those things that people would almost say, oh, wow, why aren't you owning? You know, rent's almost like a bad thing. And it's almost a stigma if you're a renter versus a buyer. And it doesn't necessarily have to be. If you actually stood back and said, I'm going to rent versus buy, and I'll live the same lifestyle, except I won't own the house. Is that better or worse? Strictly financial. And it's interesting. They uh, did this buying versus a house and holding it for 30 years versus renting and investing the same amount into the stock market. And uh, it didn't actually say versus Canadian stock market or U.S. stock market. I'll assume it was Canada's, but there may be a little bit of difference there, but not a big one. And they were using uh, 220, 2020 household income of 110000 as a household income. And you use 22% of your earnings as far as a mortgage payment. And you put down $80,000 as your down payment. So if you, it's all indexed. So if you went back to 1990, that would be like buying a $147,000 home with $38,000 down. So if you're the renter, you'd say, okay, instead of 
taking that money and plowing it into a down payment. I'm going to invest that 80000 and I'm going to invest that mortgage payment less, less the rent, and I'll invest that every month. Also, I'm going to invest the extra money I have because you don't have to pay as much for insurance. Uh, you know, if you're a, a tenant of a, an, a whatever, you don't have to worry about the outside of the property. You only have to insure the belongings. Property taxes, you don't have to pay those. And also maintenance. And that one there is, is usually looked as a percentage of the value of the house. So then they looked at rent versus buying. And it's kind of interesting. Since in the last 30 years, the annual rent as a percentage of house prices have actually fallen from 7% to 4.5%, which is actually pretty much at the all-time low which really means housing prices have gone up so much that you can find a place to rent for only for a, a far less ratio as for, in terms of how much it costs to own that house. So as an example, if you go back to 1990, rent would be about $857 a month or a little over 10000 a year and you, versus, and you could buy a $147,000 home. Okay? So... At the time, it says, okay, they actually have a really cool graph. And if you looked at the graph, from 1967 all the way to 2002, owning a house was better. You'd be better off. In fact, significantly better, to the point that you actually had to get into more of your savings because you'd run out of money in retirement if you looked at the two as, a, as an example. However, there was a sharp increase in terms of renting versus buying from 2002 to 2003. And that's really when the housing market took off. If you look at the housing prices at that time, generally speaking, they, there was a big rise. In fact, from 2003 to 2009, it really didn't matter whether you owned or whether you rented. You're about the same. And right now, funny enough, you never know it, but from 2009 to 2020, renting turns out to be a better deal. Because the cost of ownership, and again, you're looking at the markets, the stock markets have done pretty good during that period of time, it turned out to be a better place. Now, there's a lot of variables in this. They were using what they call the, uh, the house composite index. So basically houses right across Canada. So different, depending on where you were, there's big differences. So if you lived in Toronto, their increase from 2001 to 2020 was 4.6% per year is how much the house prices went up. Now, the average across Canada is only 4.2. So there's a lot of math that goes into this. And, and right now also they're saying, well, what if it's a bit of a bubble? They've been talking about this bubble for quite some time. And they, they likened it to New York City, where the market went up like crazy, but then it kind of stayed kind of settled in at, uh, at a certain point where the prices didn't go up nearly as much. And we're finding that possibly right now in Toronto. You're seeing the condo area, on condo markets kind of hit a bit of a bubble. Um, a lot of speculations out. And again, just like we started this with, a lot of people are moving out of the city. And they're saying, I, I, I want some property. So the houses have gone up, but the condos haven't. That's a total switch yeah. from just, just pre-COVID where the condo area was actually outpacing the housing market because people said, I don't want the home ownership and the maintenance fees. I'd rather just let everybody worry about that. 
So really, it, the question is, okay, that's great, Don, what, the last 30 years. What about going forward? And I, because right now, both the stock market and the house prices are fairly high. They're not, like, too high, but certainly the house prices have gone up a significant amount. Stock markets recovered from the COVID drop. Um, interest rates, if interest rates did go up right now, because interest rates are basically at all-time lows, you can get a five-year in, uh, mortgage at about 1.8%, which is a phenomenal deal. So it allows people to buy a lot more house right now. That also is spurring on the price of the houses. So what happens if interest rates go up? Well, the stock market actually would probably drop a little bit, but the housing market would soften up really quickly too. And we, know, and we, we saw that when interest rates went up to about 3% just a year ago. You saw the housing prices kind of went sideways for a while because of the increase in interest rates. And now it's the exact opposite. Housing prices are going back up again because of the interest rates dropping. The, that 4.5% annual rent ratio to the price of a house is the lowest, and it may, that may change. Okay, because rent prices may start to rise also. But right now it's kind of interesting. It's a renter's market right now. You can actually rent way more house than you can buy, way more than usual, because um, mainly because the Airbnb, the speculation, has changed. A lot of people were buying condos and houses, renting them on an Airbnb on a short-term rental. Well, that's, uh, COVID's kind of cured that whole demand, and therefore the rent prices have actually dropped. So it, is allow, it does allow extra money to be invested in, into investments rather than rent. So there's so many factors that go into this. I would actually discuss this with your financial planner to say, okay, what makes sense for me? But if you take a look at history and human nature, human nature is not to save money. And that's the one thing I do like about a house. If you have a mortgage payment, you will do anything to make that payment. There's the, you will not take that trip. You will not buy that new car. You will not get into other debt because you have a mortgage payment. It's funny enough that savings, if you had to save that mortgage payment, it's amazing how hard it is to do. Because we see this all the time, Andy and I, when somebody actually finally pays off their mortgage, they've been paying, say, 2500 a month for the last 20 years. All of a sudden, they don't have that 2500 a month anymore. They should, <laughs> but it disappears. Yeah. Oh, they need a new fridge. We deserve this new trip, whatever. There's a whole lot of psychological things get involved, and that's why it is not a, truly a financial decision. It's also a personal decision. And so what ends up happening, even though mathematically it might make sense to rent over buy, human nature may erode all that and owning may turn out to be better. That was the point that I was going to make to you, Don, because I didn't buy a house till much later in life. Uh, I didn't get married till later in life. Didn't need a house. Uh, bought a cottage first. If I had to do that in the reverse, I'm not sure I would have had the money to do it. But I think one of the things that did uh, push me over that was that uh, I didn't want to spend money on rent that I could have been investing uh, in myself. And as a renter, and you do, if you do have that extra money that you could have put towards a mortgage, chances are that's going into your pocket or out on a Friday or Saturday night and not necessarily, uh, you know, into an investment that could, that could help you down the road. So as you mentioned, it is very much for savings. 
It is, and particularly when you're 25 years old and you're and you are getting pulled in many directions, and there's so many opportunities to spend money. Let's go to Vegas for the weekend. Oh, you know what the heck? I got that extra money. And but if you're if you already own a house, oh, I'd love to, but I can't. And it it forces you not to. And I you know so I've worked out a. Uh, a comparison, but at the end of the day, it's actually interesting how close, if you bought a million dollar house versus renting one, how close after 25 years, the value actually works out pretty darn close, which one, which one will be better off. At the end of the day, I still like owning just based on the forced savings alone. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, leave a message, they'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. We're talking about renting versus buying. Yeah, this is something that, uh, and I agree with Don, that, uh, you know, our our psychology around renting versus owning something is a real really powerful decision maker. There's a lot of emotion around it, and I think that uh, the, the the renter gets a bad rap. Somehow you haven't done well financially. You're not as financially smart, or <laughs> have the wherewithal, you know, because the, this 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 psychology of the renting means somehow maybe less stable, you know, you're, you're a little more flaky, you're not really committed, you know, to the long term. So there's a lot, a lot of us that, um, uh, I think, fall into that and think about that we need to own. And, um, you know, and ironically, yet we see things like Airbnb blossoming right now, where people are actually interested in renting, but short term. And um, but I was looking at that discussion about renting versus owning and how over this 30 year period, an individual is going to be, are they going to be better off or worse off? And um, the, the the interesting part, as you were talking about, Don, is that basically everybody prior to 2001, so if you, in all 30-year periods that they analyzed prior to 2001, so that would take you right back to, what, 1971 to, to 2001, it would be the last 30-year period, uh, the homeowner was better off. But all of those people, uh, renters were better off, as Don said, from 2002 onwards. So what we're saying there is if you were a young couple back in 1980 to 1990 and you were trying to make the decision between buying a home uh, or renting a home and investing the difference, you were actually better off as a young couple in the 80s or 90s to have rented. And even though we've seen how much real estate has gone up in the most recent years, but uh, the, the truth is, is that we had much higher mortgage rates back in the 80s and 90s. So that's what really uh, was the advent, advantage for renters. And, and then the final sort of uh, piece of that, as Don said, is that rents as a percentage of house price, which early on, like back in the 80s, was around 7%, has actually dropped to about 4 4.5% of the value of the home. So rents have come down, which has really had an impact on that as well. But, you know, and but the factors are, you know, are obviously Toronto is uh, is unique in terms of how well it's done. And Vancouver is another hot spot. 
But, uh, you know, maybe it is a bubble. How long can it sustain itself? And they actually um, referred to places like New York, where they saw the similar type of bubble scenario that eventually kind of came to a flat flattening over time, back to the sort of national average, I guess. You know, for years, young people especially have talked about how difficult it is to buy a first home, whether that's a small starter home or uh, a condo or, or that sort of thing. And and many have talked about how the Airbnb type uh, short term rentals uh, have just uh, decimated the condo industry uh, as far as people who want to use that as a home simply because they're buying up all the product and, and the prices are artificially going up. Now that we're seeing those empty out as a result of COVID, will this make housing in those units more affordable for those young people? Right, because we know rents are down as much as 20% in some areas. And, um, and so obviously it's sort of shifted to be a renter's market on that, on that base. And then, um, you know, if people are carrying a lot of debt when they bought that, sort of speculated on a condo and bought into that marketplace and now trying to carry their property with lower rents and more competition for rents, uh, that that could spill over into more listings and maybe a sort of deflation of prices. But uh, I don't know. It's, I think with COVID, we have a whole nother psychology going on, and I, I'm, it's hard to it's hard to make some long term forecasts about real estate and the direction of renting versus owning based on where we are right now in terms of COVID. I, and, and it was interesting. One of the other areas that I was looking at on this property side of this was. Uh, the whole market in terms of people wanting to renovate their homes right now. So there's, we've got a lot of people that are spending money, you know, fixing up their, their home place. We also have people that are thinking of uh, a lot about buying second properties. Uh, we did a drive out in the last couple of weekends to various little cottage countries or cottage areas around southern Ontario, and almost universally, Prices are way up there because people in the city are selling their large homes where they've had big gains and either downsizing to uh, having a cottage and a, and a condo or a cottage and, a, and a, a townhouse or something with low maintenance. And, and this phenomenon has really been accelerating as well. And, and then the third thing is that people who have foreign properties, you know, those that have bought in the U.S. or uh, outside of Canada, anyway, they're actually thinking maybe I should be selling those because I can't get to them. <laughs> yeah. Or, or if this happens again, I can't get to it. And then trying to rent it and everything else has become very difficult. So it's an idle asset sitting there. And um, so we might see a change in real estate values in those communities as well, whether it's Florida or Arizona or California from a Canadian perspective. And, um, but that also sort of brought up a really, some really important planning opportunities. Let's say, for example, you decide you're going to sell your place in Florida. And it's, if it's worth a million dollars, you're going to have to, as you will, whenever you sell a property there, file a U.S. tax return. And on that tax return, on a $1 million property, the IRS is going to require, the seller is going to have to withhold 15% and send that to the IRS. And then you can recoup some of that when you get that back, uh, when you file your tax returns. But it's a complicated process in terms of actually unloading the property as well. And there's going to be capital gains. And the other thing that could happen is, let's say you've had a property outside of Canada, and you've decided now that you're basically going to rent it 100% of the time because you can't get there. Well, 
our Canada Revenue considers that a change of use. And if you've had a change of use from being a principal residence or a secondary residence to a uh, 100% rental, it's actually considered a disposition. So you are deemed to have sold that property, even though you haven't sold it, just by the fact that you've changed its use from being a, you know, your own use to now 100% rental. So that really came back to this, and we were thinking about people that are renovating. And you know the strategy is typically been, because you can only have one principal residence, you want to make sure that the property that's gone up in value the most is the one that you would typically claim as your principal residence. And so it's so important then to keep track of things like renovations because those add to what we call your adjusted cost base, the value of your home, that you, what you paid for it, plus all of the additions that you've done along the way. So it, it's never been more important as it always is, but keeping track of those receipts. Now, you have to differentiate between what are like regular repairs versus something that would qualify as a, 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 a betterment to the property. And a simple example might be if you're, just simp- if you're replacing a broken window pane, that's simply a repair, and you can't add that to the value of the home. But if you're actually replacing the whole window, that is considered a betterment. It's a long-term betterment to the property, and that would qualify to be added to the adjusted cost base of your property. So, and the other question we get, well, what if I do the work myself? And because a lot of us, maybe we've got, we're around the house all the time right now. We've got time on our hands. Sure, I'll take on that project. Well, that's what all cottage owners do, Andy. They always do the work on their houses. All the power tools are flying out of the tires. (laughs) Everybody wants to do it themselves right now. But uh, you can't add the cost of your labor to the adjusted cost base of your property, unfortunately. So it's only if you've actually paid an external person to do that work that you could quantify and add it to the adjusted cost base of your property. So, um, you know, I think so. there's a discussion around what is a betterment and what is a repair. And at the end of the day, you, by keeping all those receipts, and, and I was thinking about it just on our own personal property, or what we've done over the last, you know, decade or two, and, and I thought, you know what, I probably actually have the receipts for all of those things. And fortunately, it, it's fortunate to have that just to keep track. And the purpose is, is that if you discover that your... Uh, that your house is, or sorry, your cottage has gone up more, and you decide to name, name that your principal residence, and you sell your home, then you want to be able to reduce the tax you're going to pay by increasing the adjusted cost base. And what that results in is a smaller capital gain for tax purposes when you sell your principal residence or sell your home, the secondary property. So there's a lot, um, a lot to understand, I think, around that, but it comes back to integrating all of these decisions and the things that you're considering into your financial plan. And then as Don and I would do in consulting with our clients is try and figure out what are the, what are the different scenarios that you're considering, trying to model those within your financial plan, understand what are the tax implications, uh, turning over all the stones to make sure we've thought of things like what receipts do you have for adjusted cost base? How much have you put into the various properties? And then I think it becomes, uh, again, just a sort of, or become the sounding board of the second opinion for your financial decisions based on the overall plan. So it is interesting. You mentioned about costs, Andy. And when, pe- when people talk about housing prices going up, which they have, of course, 
it's amazing once you add in how much you spend in repairs of your house or renovations of your house. So I actually worked it out to with a client, oh, about a year ago, and she said, oh, well, there's been no better investment in Burlington than my house. And I said, okay, well, what did you pay for this thing? And uh, she told me, and then uh, we guessed what it would be worth now. And I said, you know, that works out to about a 5% per year return. Maybe it was 45 which is pretty good. But she, then she was quick to say, well, that didn't include all the money I spent for two new roofs, a new kitchen, the rec room, the driveway, and all these extra costs that go throughout that. And, of course, if you're an owner versus a renter, you, you, you have a vested interest in adding more value to the property. So you are putting more money into it. A renter, I had one client of mine that did rent, and they were owners, and they rented for about two years. And I thought it was a little strange. Again, part of that whole psychology, oh, wow, that's awfully odd. Why are you renting? Anyway, they invested the money they had from the sale of their house, and they rented. And they rented for a couple of years. And it was kind of funny. The day I went to visit them, it was right after a windstorm. And there were shingles all over, the, all over their property. And there was some major repairs on, on soffits, etc., because of a big windstorm. And she said, you know how great it is to be a renter right now? <laughs> I don't have to worry about any of this. The landlord has to fix all this out, gets the new roof, has to change the soffit, and worry about insurance companies paying for whatever because it may have been wind damage. I simply a tenant. So there's a lot of freedom simply being a tenant. And it's, uh, it's interesting the difference between the two. Um, that, that same person is now an owner again. However, they did appreciate the other side, and, and they were looking at strictly from investments. They were not caught up in the kind of the romance of being a homeowner. And yeah. there's something to be said about, oh, I'm a homeowner, and there's, and versus, oh, I'm not a homeowner. There's a stigma. And, there is. Yeah. And if you take the two away and you simply say, okay, they're investments, and we live in them, and we sell them, and we eventually move into an old-age home, which one will give you a better deal? Well, you, you, you know, you talk about, and there's such an emotion connected to a property when you own it. It just becomes that much more elevated. And, um, you know, we all make decisions based on emotions. And I tell you, the one, and I've had a great, great discussion with uh, a medical provider, and they were talking about owning um, a cottage. And they said, oh, my gosh, you know, Trying to keep up with the Joneses in cottage country is ridiculous. Like <laughs> everybody has to have, you know. If, if they were talking about, well, of course, boathouses. That that was, you know, that's a pretty major one. But just even your dock, and then it became, well, do you have personal watercraft? Do you have like all of the things that your neighbors have that suddenly become so important that you feel you need to have too? So. It, uh, you know, you got to have the, the sauna, you got to have the hot tub, you got <laughs> all the various toys that go with um, our vacation properties for sure, never mind our own principal residences. So keeping up with the Joneses is a, um, it's a slippery slope and it really is based so much on emotion. I think you're probably less inclined to keep up with the Joneses when you're renting. You certainly know if you go to a cottage, you're happy to have all those, amen- all those amenities available to you when you go to a cottage. But you're not really think, sitting there thinking, well, ooh, look at what they've got across the bay there, or look at their look at their look at their new boat that goes so fast or makes so much noise. You know, I wonder <laughs> how much that one costs to rent. 
Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's all you're thinking, yeah. How but much I want a night on Airbnb. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right, and it's interesting. There is a there is a place for renters, and there is a place for ownership. But you really should, if you're simply weighing out whether which one's better financially. Um, being in Canada, again, the forced savings might tip it towards ownership. But as far as owning a place in the states, I've been a big believer renting a place in the states, and right. COVID has really brought that to the forefront only because of all the U.S. tax laws. And I know there's a community aspect of being part of community and you have to own. That's not true. You can rent, and there's a lot of renting that's going on. My uh, in-laws right now are loving the fact that they're renters, this, and they are not going this year. And so it's very easy versus my dad, who's an owner, and he's thinking, oh, boy, I'm still paying all these bills, and I'm not able to go right now, or I don't feel safe to go right now. So That's COVID right. has really brought the difference between renting and owning, particularly of a, a second home or a vacation property in the U.S., to come to the forefront. And right there, I would definitely suggest renting is a better solution. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can check out their website at andyanddon.com or call now and leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Check out their website, andyanddon.com. Or, of course, give them a call. Leave a message at 905-529-7165. You know, lots of chatter about reverse mortgages. Is this the way to go? Uh, maybe explain well, what this is all about. Yes, it's, uh, it's interesting because... Again, we were just talking about housing prices rising so much, and people, generally speaking, are happy quite often in their house, and they want to stay in that neighborhood. Maybe they got a lot of friends in the neighborhood, and they don't want to move yet. And one consideration is a reverse mortgage. And so there's a lot of myths about reverse mortgages and really, you know, which is better. So I, I kind of just wanted to go through some of the scenarios that you have. Basically, you're just using the equity that you built up. So you've paid off your house, and let's say you have this million-dollar asset now. Well, you can borrow up to 55% of the home's value. Um, again, it's age-related, though. So they look at how old you are and how long, you know, they look at life expectancy and actuarial tables, and they actually say, okay, how much can I take out? Well, there may actually be some other reasons because it seems to be a Canadian thing. We simply move the money to our beneficiaries. And it's like, oh, we got to leave the money from our house to the kids. Otherwise, you know, we're just not being a good parent. I don't know where we got this from. However, the way I look at it is you might have a million-dollar tax-free asset. And so if you're looking at your assets and you think, well, this, that's a principal resident. And under the Canadian rules, of course, you can sell that asset and not pay any tax on it. So if you're leaving it to your kids, they're getting a million dollars tax-free. But at the same time, if you have investments that you could trigger capital gains, that may not be the best thing for you, particularly if you're making around 79000 a year and you're over 65. Anything over that limit means you're starting to get clawed back. So you're going to get clawed back your old age security. So one option may be I need some extra money per month 
maybe I should just take it right out of my house. And it's a tax-free amount every month. And this is one, one option. So it is a, something to consider. It's not a, like a desperation move. It could be, but it, it is not necessarily. It could be a tax-related move. Then it's a question of, if we're going to use money from the house, do you use your line of credit or do you use a reverse mortgage? And this is where I'm generally looking at, if you have a home equity line of credit, you can get prime plus a quarter, which would be about 2.75% right now. Versus houses, if you use a reverse mortgage, they're generally running around 3.86 on the low end and higher than that. So still not terrible, but it, you know, the one thing about a, an equity line of credit is what they say is you have to start making payments on that, home, that line of credit, where, where a, uh, a reverse mortgage, you don't make any payments. Well, that being said, I guess you could borrow more from the house out of your line of credit to make the payments, which is really the exact same thing at a lower interest rate. So one of the myths is you have to be 65 or older to qualify for a reverse mortgage. That is not true. You could actually be as low as 55 to qualify. Uh, another is the application process of a reverse mortgage is way too complicated. Well, not really. It's like applying for a mortgage. And for those people that, again, maybe hadn't applied for a debt for a long time because they've been debt-free, they simply look at your assets and your income and, your, and they say, okay, how much do you qualify for? So it's not, it isn't necessarily that complicated. Like I said, the reverse mortgages, the interest rates may be too high. And this is, where, this is where definitely the line of credit is a better deal because right now, if you just got a traditional mortgage and you pulled money out, you could get a five-year mortgage, as we mentioned, at under 2% versus a, a lump sum reverse mortgage is at 3.69 right now. And that's the lowest you can get. So you're looking at about a 2% difference on a reverse mortgage. But that being said, uh, you may not qualify, if you've left it too late, you may not qualify for a, rever- for a mortgage on your own home because you have no cash flow. So the, this way, a reverse mortgage allows you that cash flow, and therefore, that's why you're paying also a higher rate. Uh, myth four, you can be evicted if you miss payments on your reverse mortgage. I don't know why that's a myth, because you aren't making payments on a reverse mortgage. It's, simple, it's simply, you're just getting in debt, and the interest simply accrues. So the debt gets bigger and bigger until you eventually sell the house. Myth five, the bank will own your home. Well, no, no, the title is yours. You, the, the title in the deed says you, you own the house. Uh, no different than a mortgage. When you have a mortgage on your house, you are the homeowner. However, the bank has to get paid off first once you sell the house. And it's no different here with a reverse mortgage. So myth number six, you'll end up owing more than the house is worth. And that is a risk. I know that's why Investors Group never got involved in these reverse mortgages, feeling that, okay, one down down the road, the house may not grow as much as the debt. Well, it might, not be, too, might not be too politically correct to kick a senior out of their home. Exactly, exactly. And that's, that's actually the case. However, uh, most of these reverse mortgages have a no negative equity guarantee. They will not kick them out. And I guess it's worked out okay because the home values have continued to go up. And finally... A reverse mortgage is impossible to get out of, and that's not the case either. There is penalties no different than getting out of a normal mortgage. So really, it's something you should talk to your financial advisor about. Does it make sense for you, or is a home equity line of credit better? Or possibly a mix of both. But again, 
there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat. And if you look at, do you pull money out of your investments? Do you pull money out of a um, home equity line of credit? Or do you get a reverse mortgage? Some combination may be the answer. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister, Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Check out their website at andyanddon.com or call now and leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. Talking about the IG Living Plan Assessment. Yes, and for some listeners, they may have seen our commercials on TV, our national commercials, and we talk a lot about planned versus unplanned and some other taglines, but the the concept is really around what we call our IG living plan assessment. And we know that um, it's your, your financial plan, your financial life evolves and changes, as does all of our circumstances. And so the process of our living plan assessment starts with you as as center of the relationship and trying to understand your goals, what your current situation is, your family considerations. And we also recognize that you have other people in your financial life, which might include lawyers, accountants, insurance agents, etc. And we're happy to consult with them to really integrate all aspects of your financial plan to improve your financial well-being. But it may also include interactions. We have in-house specialists in terms of estate planning, insurance, and securities. So whether you have a need for insurance, banking, or lending, investment management, we can provide all of that. And at the end of the process, we end up, you end up with a, a written financial plan, which we call our IG Living Plan, and the IG Living Plan Assessment Score. Now, the living plan, that's really basically your financial plan, your retirement plan, and it shows you the path to take to achieve your goals and objectives, but it also illustrates the strategies that we're going to use layered upon each other that will make sure that you're achieving your best financial outcomes. And we measure the results. As CFPs, Don and I, we're going to analyze the six key areas of your financial life, which include optimizing your retirement, managing your cash flow, preparing for the unexpected, planning for major expenditures, maximizing your business success, and sharing your wealth or estate planning. And so we do, when we do this in each area of your financial life, you're basically given a score out of a zero to a hundred. And depending on your results, you'll either be a green light, a yellow light, or a red light. But with that score, it also gives us the opportunity to measure your improvements each year as we continue to monitor and update that plan. In other words, we're basically putting it in writing and creating a report card that demonstrates the results of our planning process. So, with COVID upon us, and I think, uh, I don't know, whenever I have this discussion with my wife and we talk about our financial plan, she really, all she really says is, so if something happens to you, who do I call? <laughs> or the second question she'll ask is, um, so where do I find all the stuff, like all the <laughs> papers and things? Like, where is that? And so we have, and I sh- was showing you guys a picture of this. This is, this is the box. And it's called the Lister Family, 
and right down there in the corner, IG Private Wealth. And you open it up, and inside you get a great big binder. And in that binder, you have all the aspects of your financial plan and your financial life. So there's tabs for each section, which include the IG Living Plan. So that's basically your your um, the recommended plan. So you know, whenever we're doing a plan with somebody, we start off with a draft, and the draft is really kind of assessing where are you right now, what are some of the strategies that we're going to consider. And then eventually we get to what we call our recommended plan. So that's our launching pad. If you think about an architect, if you were working through a project or a design, you usually go back and forth several times to get the details right. And you want to make sure it resonates with what your goals are and what you're trying to achieve. So that makes sense. And then the next section is the investments. So a kind of current snapshot of what do you own? And um, then we get into the retirement plan what does retirement look like and kind of the the monte carlo analysis that we talk about the risks of, of outliving your money essentially then we get into the wills and the estate plan so there's copies of that within your binder as well then we look at uh, insurance coverage what's happening in terms of um, life insurance permanent insurance disability insurance long-term care insurance etc the next section is your liabilities and understanding what do you owe and how we're managing that on an ongoing basis. The next section would be charitable giving, and that might be a priority for some families in terms of being able to pass something on either while they're alive or through their estate. Uh, the next would be your business documents. So if you have uh, a, an operating business, you might have holding accounts, you might have investments within those. Um, a hold co versus an opco. And then the next section gets into exciting stuff, tax returns. So your notice of assessments, your most recent returns to understand where you are from a tax perspective. And then the final section would be just key contacts. So that answers my wife's question. Who do I call <laughs> when all of this happens? So you might have your, um, you know, your financial planner. So there's Don's name and my name or, or my name are in there. You've got your accountant. You probably have a lawyer in there as well, and uh, maybe some other financial contacts as well. So it wraps it all up into one big binder, and uh, and now it's she is so relaxed. She said, "I got a place to go. I know where to go and get it all, and now I know who to call." <laughs> I feel good. <laughs> you now, survived COVID. <laughs> now we know why she married you. Well, you know, it's true. We find partners for a reason, right? We sort of fill the gaps that we don't have. <laughs> And we round ourselves out completely. That right? That makes sense. All right, we have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now, leave a message, they'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button, as well access old archive shows. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Have a great week. Thank you, Scott. Scott. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.